Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I am so glad to be with you as we continue our series in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're thinking about how we anticipate. And one question we may ask as we anticipate is, why? Why should I bother anticipating? What does that make a difference about what I need to do today? And sometimes we hear people talk about the anticipation of God returning, and it basically sounds like this, that Someday God's going to swoop us away and we can just forget everything that's happened. We can forget this world. And so it feels almost like it goes back to that question, why? Because on the one hand, it gives us a sense, well, someday there'll be rescue. Someday things will be okay for us. But as we're trying to figure out how we live today, as we're trying to figure out what we do today, how we we care about the people around us, how we function in the church, is how, how we do our jobs and care for our families, it doesn't feel like it speaks into that. But when Peter talks about Jesus returning, he speaks about it in such a way that he wants us to understand it has an impact on how we live today. Because God cares about that. The fact that he's going to come and he's going to come in judgment and he's going to come with a purification of the world, that there's going to be fire that Peter, as we're going to see in a moment, uses the the phrase, he's going to dissolve the world, doesn't mean he has no interest in this world and and how it is. God, as we're going to see tonight, is the master restorer. Anyone remember this product here? Does this look familiar? I'm not sure if it struck anyone else like it did me, but but my grandpa loved Homer Formby's products and his show and everything he had books from him. My grandpa did all kinds of furniture restoration and other antique stuff. He, he he was amazing at repairing things, and he appreciated those who were amazing at repairing things. And, and that's what Formsby was famous for. He became a phenomena at one point in the, I, I think he emerged in the 70s, in the 80s. He was still around a bit in the 90s with his products that restored furniture, with his guides on how to restore things, because he saw the beauty in things that were old and needed repair, and he tried to help people learn how to repair them. And someone like my grandpa, who was a master at it himself, he constantly was repairing things, and he could repair things that other people didn't think could be repaired. Well, he appreciated someone who who saw that same value, and and he appreciated the idea of someone who said, let's stop and not just destroy this thing, get rid of this thing, let's fix it. Well, that impulse is an impulse that we find in our God. He doesn't look at this world and say, ah, there's a garbage heap, I'm going to throw it away. There's much more to it. And sometimes we make it sound like there isn't much more to it. We make it sound like God just wants to incinerate this world. And if he can retrieve a few artifacts from it to remember what was nice, but but nothing else. Let's go ahead and take a look at what God's word says, though, because what we see is that God is someone who says, we need repair. You need repair. I need repair. But also we, as in the entire earth, need repair, not destruction, but repair. And let's go ahead and see God talk about that. Second Peter chapter three, verse 11. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and and hastening the the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? That sounds like what I just said it wasn't, doesn't it? 
we're going to need God's help to understand exactly what's being talked about here. And to do that, let's come before him in prayer. Let's pray. Father, this is confusing, trying to understand how you value your creation, how you value us and the things we do, and how that connects with what you're going to do, how you're going to wipe away sin from this world. Lord, would you help us to understand it, not so that we can get every detail right and forecast the end of time or something like that, but rather get it right because you want us to know what you value and you want us to value the same things and to, to act as those being sent out on your mission of restoration. So would you guide us today as we study your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where we want to start, we, we jump straight to the dissolving and fire and all that stuff. That stuff captures our imagination. It's also the stuff if we're going to write a book or make a movie about the end of time, that's the stuff we're going to lock in on. But what we want to start with is the stuff that's not nearly so exciting, but is really the thrust of what Peter is saying, and that is the call to holiness and piety. Your translation may say it slightly differently. It may use different words, but that is what we're going after here. Maybe it says holiness and godliness, for example. That's what my ESV says. But I like the translation holiness and piety because it gets across what does it mean to talk about these things. The holiness is straightforward. That's a straightforward translation. Piety, though, helps us because we could say, well, godliness. Godliness could be exactly the same as holiness, couldn't it? Let's think about these two things because they clue us in on what is really of import here as Peter is telling us this. Peter isn't just giving us something to, to spark our fancy or enable future Christian fiction writers to write about the destruction of, of the present heavens and earth. It's, that's not the point. Not the point of John's revelation either or any of the other apocalyptic prophecies that we read. Rather, it's to speak to us about who God is and to help us to understand how we live in accord to that. And, and these two words anchor us in that. The first one, holiness, speaks of, of how we should be set apart. Now, we live in the world. Peter ministered in the world. The people he was writing to lived and ministered in the world. But they were still meant to be set apart. We weren't supposed to live like the world. The world has lots of ideas on how we should live, what the good life looks like, what things we need to achieve, and what ways we should go about achieving those things. But Peter says, if you're going to follow Christ, you should be set apart from that. Our lives should look different, maybe even strange to people. Not just strange for the sake of strangeness, but strange because we're actually trying to, to, to turn our course of our lives towards what God has called us to do. And we do that with God's help. It's, it's not about us doing it on our own. No one can achieve holiness on their own. If we think about this word holiness, we, we may want to turn back and think about the story of the Exodus and the, the laws given to Moses and, and the people of God at that time. There was lots of talk about holiness and how, for example, a priest would be set apart as holy or an item for the, the tabernacle would be made holy. And it was a process of doing a ritual, asking God to purify that person or purify that thing for the set-apart use of pleasing God. And you do that before you used it in the worship of God. And that's why I just made such a big deal about how we translate these two words. Because if we get to that second word, piety, it can refer to the process of worshiping. 
And so if we think about it, what we're seeing here is Peter saying the two things we should be concerned about when we're talking about the end of time are how we live right now by setting ourselves apart to be more like Christ. That daily choice to turn away from whatever sin we want to be involved in, whatever sin is appealing to us, whatever sin we're struggling to get out of, to say, I don't want a part of that. And then to take that separation from sin that, that we experience as God helps us through that, to turn it into worship. We seek to be holy, and then we take that holiness into the tabernacle of our lives, the tabernacle or temple that God makes our body, and we use that then to worship God. And so what we see here is Peter's talking about the whole of life, both the 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 real religious moments, so to speak, the, the times that we're actually going in to church or, or singing praises to God or, or our quiet time where we're reading our Bible or whatever it might be, those sorts of times. But then everything else pouring in and preparing us for that. Now you might say, well, that sounds like what a lot of scripture says. Why do I need to know about the end times to, to speak of that? I know, Tim, when we started tonight, you said that you're going to say that it's a little different than we often think about the end times, but it seems like you're not even talking about the end times. But in this, we need to learn a lesson from my grandma. I told you about my grandpa and how he was so good at restoring things. Well, let me tell you about my grandma. And if you've listened to, to these steadfast evenings for a long enough time, or, or if you've known me for long enough, you, you probably know something about my grandma, which is that she loved dessert. She was the dessert lover's dessert lover, and she can make fantastic desserts, so all kinds of different things, beautiful pies and, and, and cookies and, and cakes and you name it, she could make it. And it was wonderful. It was delicious. People still decades later rave about the, the pies she made. But she also appreciated when she could go to say to a restaurant and find a good piece of dessert. And she valued that so much that when she went to a restaurant, she didn't necessarily take the same approach to the menu that you and I might typically. She would go and she'd turn to the back page or the back section or the separate little dessert menu, wherever the desserts were, and she mapped out her dessert first. She wanted to understand what was to come. And she wanted to understand it so she could prioritize what she was going to do right now as she ordered her entree to make that entree a good preparation for the dessert. If there wasn't an exciting dessert, if there wasn't anything really worthwhile to look forward to, maybe you get a, a bigger meal, a meal that sounded more like what she was really hungry for something that was on the, the, the entree menu. But if that dessert sounded great, if there was a death by chocolate on there or something, she was going to plan her, her entree accordingly so she had enough room to really enjoy that dessert. And Peter here, as he's talking about what's to come, is saying, don't lose sight of the dessert menu. The old saying, life short, eat dessert first. Well, we can't eat the end times first. It's still to come. But what we can do is prepare ourselves, not in the sense that we're going to hunker down, go find a survivalist site and buy food rations for some war that's coming, that kind of thing. Not that kind of preparation, but rather the daily preparation of asking God to help us to turn away from sin and turn towards holiness. And to take that holiness and regularly pour that into worship, whether it's our individual worship and prayer times, whether it's what we do at church, all those things. And so we see this holistic picture that we're living our lives, picking out the right entrees in life so that we're preparing ourselves and also by example and by how we serve others through that, 
preparing others for the dessert to come. Because it's life by chocolate that's coming, not death by chocolate. Do I do this, though? And, and this is the challenge as I was thinking about this. And I've talked about things like this before, and I talk about it, but do I actually do it? And, and this is hard, and I would imagine all of us struggle with it. I struggle with it. I, I wake up in the morning, and, and what do I do? I, I go and read the news. I, It's just what I've always done since I, I was a kid, and the, we still had these things, these amazing devices called newspapers that were delivered. They They came and just appeared magically in your front yard and you could pick up this thing and there was all kinds of news in it. What's going on in the world? What's going on in business? What's going on in sports? What's going on in the city, in the country? Whatever you wanted, it was all in there. It just magically appeared, right? Now we have something even more amazing. We have the internet and you can tune in to your favorite news website and see exactly what's going on in the world this minute. Maybe you go onto Twitter or X or whatever it happens to be called today and, and you go to that and you look at that and you can see people actually on the ground experiencing news right now. And I'll do that. And I'm fascinated by it. I like knowing what's going on in the world, but I can get so fixated on that. Am I thinking about what's going to come on in the world? And not in the sense that I'm trying to pick out in, in scripture. Ah, I, I think if I read Revelation just right, I'm going to know what empire is going to swoop into some other empire and, and cause some kind of trouble. Not that kind of knowing what's going to happen. Am I keeping my eyes on what Jesus is going to do? Because our tendency is to focus on the earth. And even when we talk about the future, if you go and buy a book of Bible prophecies or you read Christian fiction, most of it is focused not on the heavenward focus. Yeah, it's talking about God and his power, but it's focused on how are the different parts of what we know about our world going to interact in the future? Sometimes it's Russia that people are focused on. Sometimes it's Iran. Sometimes it's somewhere else. Sometimes it's our own United States trying to focus on these things. Or or, or for our southern campus, our own Mexico, wherever it might be that we live, we start to focus on that. And even as we're looking to the future, and even as we're looking in theory heavenward into what God is going to do, what we're really saying is, what is God going to do with this thing that is always of my earthly concern? Whether it's what I I check in the news in the morning, whether it's what I do at night when I'm just killing time before I go to bed, whether it's what I'm listening to on the radio all day or while I'm driving to and from work, we go right back and we try to pull heaven into that. And in a sense, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask, well, how can I be reminded of God's faithfulness as the world seems like it's in chaos? But what we're really saying is, how can I understand, get a little edge on this and really understand how the chess pieces are moving? What God doesn't want us to do is that. What he does want us to do is to say, God, I want to have such a focus on the dessert to come, on the life by chocolate that, yeah, I should know what's going on in the world. I'm not advocating otherwise, but my focus isn't, how can the Bible explain the movers and shakers of the world? Or, or how can the world as it is right now be my primary focus? But how can I be living my life in that news, in that culture, in this moment, in a way that is preparing everybody around me for the day when Jesus makes everything right? Because that's what really matters. And, and sometimes that feels awkward right now. Sometimes it feels uncomfortable because... As we're trying to live more like him and we're we're interacting even with prophecies and thinking, well, but I want to know what's, what this means for my life and for my nation's life and for this world's life. 
what God's really calling us to do is to understand his heart and what he cares about, that he's a restorer. We're not going to figure out how all these prophecies fit exactly before they happen. We're not going to gain what we really need to gain by spending all our time trying to match the news to prophecy. What we are going to gain from is understanding what God's intent is, where he's taking us. Take a look at verse 13. Peter says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All this talk of dissolving and fire and so on is not just ending there. And sometimes that's how we treat it. Sometimes we treat it, well, God's going to dissolve this world, and then I'm going to be up in the clouds playing my harp as an angel. And there's so much bad theology in that. We're not going to become angels, and we're not going to float in clouds playing harps. But if, you play, if you're a harpist, wonderful, and you should sign up for um, Little Hill's upcoming Christmas choir and play harp during it, I mean, that would be fantastic. Uh, but if you're not a harpist, and you don't want to be a harpist, you're not going to be forced into being one. You're not going to suddenly not act like a human being. God is interested in actually restoring the creation that he made. Take a look at Romans 8, 20 to 21. Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's a lot going on there, but if you notice that what we're hearing about there is the creation, not just people, the creation. The creation is yearning for freedom from the bondage of sin. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God cares about that creation. When we view this creation, this world that we live in, as something that we just are going to pull the the eject button from an escape and put out our parachute and get away from before it explodes, we're not viewing it with the same loving care that God does. And that makes it hard then to care about that holiness and piety we were talking about. Because even as it maybe says, well, I want to be holy enough to, to be in the ejector seat and get out of here. It's really hard to love our neighbor, to, to care for the people around us, to care for building up the church in this moment to care for our world as it hurts when, when we're really thinking about how did I escape it and maybe take a few people along with. But when we say this world is a world that God made good, we were talking about that last night in Sunday School Express. This is a, a world that as God finished it, he declared very good. And as we look at it and we look at the suffering in it, what we should be thinking is to the extent that I can give people a little taste of that life by chocolate right now, as I can remind people to set down that, that five-course entree because they're going to miss out on the dessert, I'm actually helping in that process of restoration that God is calling all of us to. Commentators wrestle a little with some of the language we see here and how to, to translate exactly in Second Peter. We look over in 1 John as well. We can play with the wording a little bit. And it may be, as for example, that, that as Peter speaks here uh, of things being dissolved, that he's really saying it's dissolving around us. And, and, and doesn't it feel that way? It feels like the world is, is coming off the tracks at times. It's not hard to think about this dissolution happening at all around us right now. It's not some future thing. The sin is eating into the world constantly and tearing it up. But as we do that, we need to, to have the right focus about where we're going. 
Calvin, in reflecting on this passage, said that the, the thing that we need to do as we read about what's going to happen to the earth is to think about our relationship to our God. That's exactly where we need to land on this. So, you say, but you still haven't answered the question. It sounds like God's going to destroy this world. And yeah, Romans speaks about the, the creation wanting freedom, but maybe creation isn't going to get what it wants. But take a look at Isaiah 65, 17 to 22. Isaiah writes, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. As Isaiah reflects on what God's going to do, this, this new heavens and new earth, notice that he doesn't describe a fundamentally different place. He describes Eden. He describes a world untouched by sin, the world the way it was supposed to be. As we think about that, Isaiah is telling us, and Peter is referring to that as he uses the same sort of terminology. He has Isaiah in mind. He knew the prophets. The people hearing this knew the prophets. What they're both saying to us is, God cares and God's going to restore. It's not about destruction. It's not about special effects that make a great Hollywood end times movie. What is it about? It's about dwelling with the expectation of what's to come and then wanting to, to, to reassess how we use our lives right now. The choices we make that seem, maybe it's the, it seems like the most useful thing to enjoy this world but it isn't the best for setting us up for enjoying that dessert to come. It isn't the best to help set other people around us up to enjoy the dessert to come. And notice here that Peter uses this phrase in verse 12 that we're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. You might say, does that mean that we can actually force God's hand that if we do the right things, he'll have to come back sooner? No, it's coming right back to what he talks about, about, holiness, about piety. As we live lives that are pleasing to God, as we live as we ought, as we live in holiness and we reject the sinful choices that often are ensnaring us and pulling us and seem to offer relief, and we instead do what God's called us to, and we live lives of worship, we're hastening the day of the coming of the Lord because we're living in a way that points to him. Part of that holiness is telling other people about God. And part of that holiness is living in such a way that when people see us, they want to know why we live differently. We live the same as everybody else. If we act the same as everybody else, if we use the same excuses and justifications for how we function as everybody else. In church, we are incredibly guilty of doing this. When we fall into that, we're doing anti-hastening, so to speak. But God calls us to hasten. 
not in the sense that we're going to force his hand, but rather we go and do his work. And in that, we're allowing people to experience the new heavens and new earth, at least a taste of that dessert to come right now. They're getting a sample. And we're getting closer to the final work being done of as many people as will ever know our Lord, knowing him. Because he's the restorer. He wants us to be restored and he wants us to help restore others. That was the thing about Homer Formby. He didn't want to wipe away what was good about the things he found that he wanted to restore. And neither did my grandpa. My grandpa wasn't the sort of person that you see in a lot of the trendy home shows now that will take an antique and and paint it in a way it would never be painted and, and try to redo it and make it something that's somehow stylish in this moment, but completely discards what it was as an antique. He made it look like it was meant to look again. He made it, he took away the, the years of dirt and soiling and the broken parts and fixed them to look as if they hadn't been broken. He was trying to bring it back to what it was, just like a a master art restorer might do with a, a masterpiece that's been passed down and, and accumulated soot and so on. And I think that's why I never asked him, but I think that's why he liked Homer Formby. Because one thing that Formby did that I didn't know about until I was reading about him recently is that there was this whole trend of the, the so-called dip and strip furniture restorers that would take a piece of furniture, take off all the finish, drop it in, in a vat oftentimes of some kind of caustic thing that would just take everything off, be right back down to wood, and then they would refinish it. He said, but that's wiping away the beauty of the antique. That's wiping away the history of the thing and almost making a new thing. Instead, he, he advocated for using different formulas of chemicals and oils and so on that would take away the dirt, but leave the original finish to keep what was antique and beautiful. That's what God's going to do. There's going to be a fi there is going to be fire. There's going to be that dissolution because God's going to wipe away the sin and the cruft that has attached itself to this creation that is so good and beautiful that God has made. But he's going to restore it to its pristine condition, the way it was meant to be. And, and all who choose to follow him, all who say, I want a part in this, Lord, are going to experience that beauty, that wonder of being a part of that restored world a world that hasn't been dipped and stripped and removed of everything into something totally different, but a world where the sin has been wiped away and made good because God is the master restorer. And we're invited to be part of that restoration and incredibly that restoration team. Let's pray that he would use us that way today. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for, for not discarding us, but wanting to restore us. Lord, would you help us to be those who restore and we do so not because we're so great or we're so powerful, but rather because you have restored us as we trust in you. If we haven't yet done that, Lord, would you help us to start there? To start to experience that restoration ourselves, but then as we experience it and as your spirit works in us, would you use us to help call others to experience that dessert to come, to, to experience the hope not of destruction that wipes away everything we know and treasure and love, but rather makes it right, takes away sin. We ask for your help in this. We pray in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. Please do give us a like or a share. Follow our YouTube channel. Follow our Facebook page. Follow our page on X and on Mastodon. As you follow our social media, as you share our things, you're helping us to get the word out and help more people know what God is doing. Next week, we're going to be thinking more about how we take that restoration to the world and how we, we bring peace into the world. So please do join me for that. 
In the meantime, if you have any prayers or questions, feel free to shoot a text to the text line on screen, 833-356-4032, or leave a comment or a prayer request in the comments below. It's always good to get to pray with you. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I will see you again very soon.